0: Our God is the one who is faithful, who always has been faithful, and who always will be faithful. And uh, it's a great way to praise Him for that, uh, with that hymn. So thank you, Andrew, for that. Uh, you, many of you were there, but some weren't able to be there. And we, we gathered last Sunday night for our congregational meeting, and, and at that time we shared together about where we have been as a church and, and where we're going, and uh, Just as a brief recap for those who were there and and maybe to help those who weren't there to understand some of the things that we talked about, I wanted to highlight a few things. Uh, Pastor Andrew took us through some key points in our church history, and, uh, you know, from being planted in 1964 to the completion of our original building, uh, just hours before Easter Sunday morning uh, in 1966— uh, we, we looked at that and, and, and rejoiced and gave thanks for how God worked you know, uh, with wood uh, from the Naval Weapons Station and Pastor Herzog, uh, the man that God used to plant our church, uh, with the, the youth group of the church pulling nails out of those pieces of wood so they could be reused <laughs> to build uh, the building. And uh, and then you know, as a decade or so passed uh, from that time, a little over that, uh, our, our church found itself in need to expand. We're running out of room. And so that's when the main auditorium, the room we're in right now, uh, was, was built. And God's people prayed and they gave and they labored. And, and, uh, and, and this, this building was put together. Um, at the time being built, I think someone referred to it as the big spider on top of the hill. But you can see, you know, the, the beams right here. Um, and, and many wonderful things have happened in the, in the decades since that time. We have a wonderful heritage as a church. And we're grateful for that. Uh, then, as we were continuing to talk, I took a moment to just ask a key question. You know, what, what are our buildings in campus? Like, what are they for? And, and we talked about how the gospel is at the center of everything that we do, the good news about Jesus. And every part of our campus is really utilized for the purpose of furthering uh, God's work amongst us and in our community in that way. Uh, whether it's the time that we gather to worship together in this room or uh, whether it's our, our gatherings around meals or our fellowship times, or, or maybe it's the time that we uh, care for our young people or the kids in the nursery. Um, all of it is there for, for one reason, that is to further the gospel. It's a tool. And so we're committed to reaching all people of all backgrounds. And we're committed to calling them to join us and growing deeper and walking closer and reaching farther. And, and as we've been talking about that and thinking about that, um, we've realized that perhaps the access for our campus isn't all that it should be for people. Uh, maybe you could imagine if you had mobility challenges. Um, possibly you're, you're using a wheelchair or a walker. And, and, and the question we've been asking is, what what are we saying to you when you come on campus? What does this space say? Uh, and, and as much as we are certainly warm in terms of a welcome, our church is excellent at that. Everyone that I talk to that comes to our church one thing they say is, what a warm, welcoming group of people, and certainly that is the case. But but for those in that category who have mobility issues, as much as there's a warm face to welcome them, are we really prepared for you? Um, we, we have a place for you, uh, but are we really able to receive you into every part of our, our church life? And, and so in light of that, we've been talking about ways we can update our campus to better reach and care for and give access to all people. Um, then Chris Sodergren came up, our, the de- chairman of our deacon board, and, and he shared a request for prayer for next steps because the deacons are considering a proposal right now that would extend the footprint of our nursery wing, which is right through that window. Look at that window of that building over there. We're not touching this building, but over there, we're considering something that would extend the footprint of that uh, and it would cost in the neighborhood of $2.5 million. And uh, it would include things like an elevator. It would include restrooms that are accessible, inviting, and functional. Uh, it would include a refreshed welcoming space. And so the deacons are asking for prayer that God would lead us uh, for discernment and steps ahead. They're asking for prayer that our church family would walk together united in this effort and that God would be glorified and our witness to our community and in the way that we care for one another. And so you're going to be receiving a a letter this week in the mail uh, with the specific requests uh, for prayer that the deacons are asking of each of us. And and this is the Lord's church. All of us desire to walk in tune with him each step of the way in this effort. And so if you're not on the church mailing list and you would like to receive that letter, just go ahead and, and, and reach out to us if you'd like to pray with us along these very specific lines. And uh, we can, we can get, you, get you on there. You can reach out to info at claytonvalleychurch.com to let us know. But these are exciting days as we look ahead and go, Lord, what do you wanna do? And how are you gonna do it? And, and certainly, uh, we wanna be in tune with him and we're seeking him together now in that. I'm grateful for uh, our leadership team. I'm grateful for those who have labored to even put together some of these initial ideas and concepts and uh, let's pray together now and seek God in this, lord uh, we come to you and we would pray that you would just guide us we thank you that this is your church we thank you that clayton valley church belongs to you you died for her she is your bride you will share her with no one and we praise you for that and so we ask that lord you would help us together as your people to walk in a way that is in tune with your desires and your plans Uh, And we thank you that we can embark upon this together in prayer before you. Uh, Lord, we only want to be done what you would desire. Uh, We don't want one one piece of wood, one nail, uh, one element of construction to even uh, so much as begin uh, without it being of your leading. And so we seek you in these moments and we look to you and we thank you in advance that you are the one who promises to give wisdom to those who seek you for it. And so we come to you now and we give you thanks for how you will work amongst us. For your glory, uh, for the demonstration of the gospel here at Clayton Valley Church, and for the rescuing of the lost in our lives and in this neighborhood and even around the world. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I recently heard a podcast and the title of that podcast was, um, When Will the Robots Be Taking Over? And essentially, it was an interview with Eric Schmidt, who was an early engineer with Google. He wasn't one of the founders, but he was one of the first engineers. He really was in his garage setting things up uh, that would later be known as, you know, kind of connecting to things that would be called the, the internet, or maybe back far the interweb, or whatever they called it back then, right? So there was this, you know, remember DOS? Remember AOL? You know, remember that? Like, there was all that, you know, you've got mail and the sound of your modem going... You know, and and kids are looking at me now going, what are you talking about? Yeah, I know. It was another era. But he was there in that time, and he talked about how how optimistic he was. You know, he thought, yes, we're starting a new thing, and information is just going to be out there, and it's going to be free, and people are going to lay hold of it, and it's just going to be for good. I mean, what could go wrong? And you're kind of like, yeah, uh uh-huh. Who knew, right? I mean, who knew that human beings would use a good thing for, oh, I don't know, evil purposes, right? But we've, we see that constantly. And, and so now he's talking in this interview, and he's going, yeah, I, I know better now. I know better now, I'm not that optimistic. And then the question came to you know, what about AI, you know, artificial intelligence? What's happening? What, what do you see? You were there at the beginning. What do you, what do you see when you look ahead? And he's like, oh, it's wonderful. It's gonna be beautiful. Um, if you're a journalist and you want to write an article, uh, you can essentially say, I want to write the article in the style of this, this columnist. So let's say it's Peggy Noonan or something, right? So I'm going to write an article with that style and it's going to be um, on the, the current uh, gas prices that are going up. And uh, you just enter those two things, boom. And you know what's going to happen? The AI is just going to out-spew this, this article. And it's going to be better than Peggy could have written it, by the way, in her style, uh, covering that topic. And you will have collaborated and come up with this beautiful article. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, time out. Whoa, what what collaboration? (laughs) This is like the vending machine that bypasses all creativity, right? It's like, I just take my, I want an article like this, and I put this, and I press a button, and out comes an article, you know? That's not collaborative. That's called, like, not doing it, okay? And then I'm thinking, of course, as a pastor, I'm like, okay, great. Here we go. I want a sermon in the style of John Piper, On Romans 3. Bing, bing, bing. The sermon comes out. It's better than John Piper's. Right? And and I'm going, that is not, that is not, uh, as a pastor, you're not engaging with the text. You're not praying over, you know, the people that God's brought to this particular church. You're not applying it. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that are not happening, that are not being done. And so I I, I feel like, uh, you know, all these wonderful ideas. And, and, of course, he kind of stops for a moment. He goes, okay, now, look, I realize in the past I've been wrong. <laughs> Maybe it's not a great idea. But, but the reality is, is oftentimes, especially in the modern world, and by the way, let's be grateful for the advances that we've, we've had. They are good. Technology is, I mean, I preach from an iPad, okay? I, I get it. We, we enjoy and are benefited by a lot of elements of technology. It's not to say those are wrong. But the assumption That we know how all this works, that we know what direction it should go in, and that we know all the upside without realizing that there's going to be unexpected consequences probably to anything that we would do. That's arrogance and it's foolishness, though it can appear to be wisdom. And Paul has been taking the Corinthian church through this important distinction between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. Uh, a lot of times things that are obvious to human beings, to us as men and women who are made in God's image, who are creative, who want to look and, at things and do things and, 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 and go out and, and, and rightfully so represent Him in this world in a good way, a lot of times the things that we think that are wise and are best are in fact the opposite. And the way God approaches things is so categorically different from the way we as human beings would or Do. And so, in the church in Corinth, there were a lot of different elements of arrogance and pride and hubris and the, the claiming of knowledge, when in fact, they were based upon the ability of human beings and the way in which human beings approach things and the way the culture around them wanted to approach things, rather than the way God approaches things. And so, Paul counters that by saying, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he's been unpacking that the entire time since then. And uh, we began there a couple weeks back. And now today we find ourselves continuing those thoughts in First Corinthians chapter 2. And we find that in verses 6 through 16. First Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16 and this is the word of God and we want to receive it in, in, with that in mind. So would you please stand and follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter two, beginning with verse six. He's already said, I didn't come to you with preaching in persuasive words of wisdom. I did so instead by the spirit's power. And then he goes on to say, for the, so that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And now he goes on, verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Things which we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that in this time, in this moment, that your spirit himself would do the very things described in the passage we've read. We ask, Lord, that he would teach us, that we would become the men and women you've called us to be, that we would operate and walk trusting you by your power, by your grace, that we would live and even share with others around us using your uh, given means to accomplish the beautiful end of salvation. Thank, we thank you that you are the one alone who can do this. And we ask that you grace us to see you in a clearer way this day And to walk through our lives differently because of what you do, even in our hearts now. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the risen Savior, the ruler of all, the King of kings. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Well, as we look at the contrast that Paul has drawn between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that comes from God, we find several things about the wisdom that that is from God. Um, And, of course, he's been contrasting the world's wisdom and and God's wisdom uh, throughout this whole section. And and in some ways, as he's ended the previous section by saying, hey, you know what? Or in, in the middle of this previous section, he's going, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So now Paul comes and he's qualifying that a little bit by saying, hey, there is a wisdom I'm not trying to say that, you know, there's just foolishness and just embrace foolishness and, you know, that's the way to go. Not at all. He's saying instead, God has a wisdom and and there is a wisdom that comes from him. And in verse 6, he begins by telling us that this wisdom has certain qualities. And one of the first qualities is this. The wisdom from God is not of this age. It's not of this age. Uh, We see it as he describes the rulers of this age. And he says, by the way, they are passing away. Um, The ones who are in power in the first century, he says, they are passing away. And they don't get this wisdom that's from God. Uh, Think about it. Rome ruled most of the known world at that time in terms of that area. A large, expansive empire. If you were close to the top at Rome you had it all. If you were a Roman citizen, you had privilege. And Paul at that time is saying, it's all passing away. Now, if you were sitting there in Corinth and you were hearing this, you'd be going, yeah, right. Give me a break. They win all their wars. No one can defeat them. They've they've brought what no one could bring to the ancient world. Pax Romana. Peace. Peace. Not to mention, look at the roads they build. I mean, come on. There's no way they're going down. But think about it. Here we are today. There's a lot of world crises happening. Again, we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. We continue to to pray that God would bring to a stop that war and everything that's feeding into it. Um, And yet, is anyone really concerned about Italy right now? Oh, Italy's a wonderful place. We love visiting there if we can go, right? But are, are they a dominating world power? No. You can go to Rome still. You can see some amazing architecture. You can see amazing history. But what Paul said here, very true. We need to remember that today, though, as well. There are still rulers. They still dominate different areas of the planet they still exercise their dominion and will and in power and yet even in the current conflicts that we've seen let's remember something they will pass away why cuz there's only one king there's only one ruler And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as the prophets of old would describe this coming kingdom, Daniel describes the stone hewn without hands that comes and smashes into the statue that shatters all the man-made empires and and dominions. Isaiah prophesies of the one whose monument is established in stone never to be wiped away. And so... Here we see that this, this ruling one is, is the one who is, is to come. Go ahead and drop down to, to uh, verses eight and nine. We see the same idea. Notice, none of the w- rulers of this age have understood. For if they had understood they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now that's an incredible juxtaposition of two ideas. The idea of crucifixion in the same phrase as the Lord of glory. Right there, that's absurd. How's that possible? Well, again, because of God's wisdom and because of what he's done to rescue sinners, that he himself would come, live the life we could never live, die the death that we deserve in our place. They didn't grasp that. This idea of of the Lord of glory and crucifixion being together in the same phrase, certainly the Jewish person there looks at that as being utterly absurd. And the, the, the Gentile of that time would see it, of course, as foolishness. But that's the thing. The way of the cross, the word of the cross, that's true wisdom, that's true salvation. And so verse 9, there Paul is is quoting the prophet Isaiah from a couple different places. But notice what he's saying there. Eye hasn't seen, ear has not heard, hasn't even entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. And frankly, the wisest of the wisest of the wise amongst human beings would never have thought of this. It hasn't occurred to them. And yet it's so much better than anything we could ever dream. So wisdom from God is not of this age. And uh, who speaks of this wisdom? Notice in verse 6, those who are mature. Uh, That doesn't mean perfect. That means those who are growing in wisdom, in the love and knowledge of Jesus, in their maturity as Christians, they they discuss this wisdom. And in some ways, he's saying to the Corinthians, "Uh, you guys are really, you're believers, but you're immature. Why? Because you're having fights right now about, oh, I'm of Cephas. Oh, I'm, I'm of Apollos. You know, you're fighting about what leader's best. You're, you're, you're having, you know, weird contests on your favorite preacher and which one excels the most. You're totally distracted from what matters. You're embracing false criteria for true spirituality. And Paul's bringing them back and saying, there is a wisdom, an actual wisdom. It's the word of the cross. It's, it is the crucified Lord of glory. And rather than trying to look like you get it or fit in with the world around you, realize God's wisdom is not of this world. If it was, the rulers of this age would have gotten it and they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But God and his wisdom had a purpose in that to rescue Sinners. What does this mean for us as we go through the week? Well, a couple of things. One would be this. Expect to be misunderstood and opposed by other people when you are talking about God and the things of God. Expect it. Now, I'm not saying deliberately go out of your way to be offensive. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, they were mad at me. I must have been doing the right thing. That's not the case. No, that's not it. But, I, but what this passage is telling us is as we live out the gospel in a winsome, bold, caring, loving way, we're gonna be opposed. The people at work, they're probably not gonna be including you in everything. Cause why? Because they're going after things you're, you're likely not going after because you're honoring the Lord. Uh, there might be moments where you're ostracized, where you're left out. There might be moments where someone might, might be after you at work. They want you gone. In your neighborhood, it could be the same thing. It could be the same way among Family or, or where you find yourself, wherever it would be. But let's let's be aware of that. That's that's gonna be important. So let's let's not make it our aim to be received by and accepted by everybody around us in the culture. That's what the Corinthian church is doing. Let's not make it our aim, as we've said before, uh, to, to sort of live in such a way that we you know we can rescue God from embarrassment in terms of something about the gospel or something about the truth of scripture or what, what, is, what he's declared to us as, as seen as foolish by the world. Now, instead, let, us, let, make, let it be our aim to live in a winsome and bold way each moment of each day with each person God's placed around us. Who, who is each person that God's deliberately placed around us? Every person we encounter throughout the week. Not one time, not one interaction has been by accident or is random. So the wisdom of God is not only not of this age, but secondly, we would see it is also pre-planned by God. Find that in verse 7. Look at what he says. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages for our glory. It's a mystery. Now, now, a mystery is something that is true but not yet revealed. And, and, and this is, is really Paul stressing the idea that the, the gospel isn't, isn't like a plan B. It's not like, oh, God's going, oh, oh whoa, we've got to like reverse something or, or go around or, you know, change something up here because this isn't working. No way. The gospel instead has been there from the very beginning. If you look at Genesis chapter 3 and you look at the moment of the curse, that came about because of, because of our sin. Right there, he, has, he demonstrates and declares the promised seed that's coming. And, and even in speaking to the serpent, as the serpent's being cursed, he says, you will bruise him on the heel, but he will crush your head. Right there, that's a picture of the Messiah that's coming. It's not an afterthought. And so as the mystery is revealed over time by God, um. God brings this out and and calls us to see this mystery and behold it. So Paul's going to talk about that more a little later. But the point here is simply that it was veiled. It was really there, but it was veiled. And then God in his timing is, is opening it up for the world to see. And in the gospel, we see this displayed, in Christ, displayed. Now for them, they had a big appetite for mystery. That term would have been used amongst them to kind of have that secret knowledge thing going, right? So the elite, the special, those are the ones who who have access, not everybody. But here Paul is saying, no, you want a mystery? There's this hidden wisdom of God that he's predestined before the ages. Uh, So before there was anything in place in terms of man's uh, culture or time or the ages of time, God had this beautiful, mysterious salvation appointed and ready. Uh, God, in his tenderness and in his love, in his wisdom, He, he, he before time began, he, as one who, who loved his people and concerned for their well-being, put in place, put together the gospel that would bring us into glory. Isn't that a fascinating thing? Notice, I would have thought it would have said, predestined before the ages for his glory. But look at the end of verse seven. For our glory. What? What's he talking about? At that point, we see that God's plan of salvation, this beautiful, mysterious gospel is put in place in order to bring about us sharing in his glory. That is the tenderness of God. That is the kindness of God demonstrated. And so we need to stop and take a look at that. You know, what, what an amazing design. I was trying to think, you know, what what are some examples of great design that I personally appreciate? And I can tell you right now, um, well, Andrew didn't play guitar today because I thought you were going to borrow mine too, but that's okay. All right, whatever. If... My guitar was up here. Or Andrew's. We both have the same guitar. We both have a guitar made by a company called Taylor. And Taylor has made this beautiful, wonderful way to amplify an acoustic guitar. And it's called the expression system. And you're like, really, is that just another way to market something? And say, well, it kind of might be. But here's the thing. Usually for a guitar, if you want it to sound, okay, I can't, well, right there, if you look at the bass, so look at this thing. Normally, with this guy right here, I'm sorry, by the way, Ephraim, if I'm bothering you by touching the bass. But anyway, so here's, here's a pickup, right? These are magnets, and that's how you make the sound, right? So that's, that's how they would make that sound. Um, the problem is this. When you use magnets to pick up the movement of strings, what you get is an electric sound, which, by the way, on an electric bass is beautiful. Uh, on an electric guitar, beautiful. But on an acoustic guitar... You want it to sound acoustic, don't you? I do. Raise your hand if you want your acoustics guitars to sound acoustic. See, that's most of us, right? Yes. Some of you don't. That's fine. I'll pray for you later. But the point is, you want this thing to sound acoustic. And so what, what did Taylor do? What they did um, is they actually hired a seismologist because with, with a guitar, the acoustic are the main way you're going to have sound is that front piece of wood, the soundboard. When that thing resonates and moves, that's what's giving you the sound. So they hired a seismologist to come in and to help them better measure the movement of that wood. And then rather than using magnets, they actually have these sensors that they built that are kind of encased in a fluid. And the fluid inside the sensor measures the vibration of the wood. All that to say, when you plug it in, guess what? Sounds like an acoustic guitar. It's a beautiful design, it's a simple design. It's not complicated, but it does something that nobody else would ever do. And and, and that is the idea that we see here about the gospel. The gospel is this beautiful, intricate design by God. It was designed before the ages. It was designed to do something unique to save sinners, to bring sinners into relationship with God, ultimately to our glory even. Who would have thought of that? Here's the irony. The first the people in, in Corinth who are receiving this letter, what are they all about right now? Their glory. That's what they want. I got the best teacher. I have got the best spiritual gift. I'm the one who knows. I've got all knowledge. I know my stuff, my theology. I've got it down and there's arrogance, and there's glory they're trying to bring to themselves in that. And Paul is saying, the word of the cross, that's where you find glory. That's the only place you're gonna find glory. And there, the gospel, this beautifully designed thing, pre-planned by God, that's something to be in awe of. That's something to rejoice in. Also, in light of God's design before the ages, that's something to take courage in as well gives us courage. Why? Well, because God's the one that's designed this means of salvation, this intricate, beautiful thing called the gospel that's going to bring about reconciliation with God that ultimately results in us sharing in his glory, in his kingdom that is coming very soon. So what happens is in the moment, right now, I can have courage. I'm going to need it. If I'm facing opposition, I need courage. And I can have courage because his wisdom, his plan, his provision in Christ gives me everything that I need. Pre-planned by God. That's a beautiful element of God's wisdom. But there's a third. The wisdom of God is not just not of this age. It's not just pre-planned by God. It's also revealed by the Spirit. The uh, Spirit. In verses 10 through 13, we see this amazing depiction. This design by God of the gospel is beautiful, but, but how, how do we get it? How do we receive it? How do we grasp it? How do we know it? How can we enter into it and participate in, in what God's accomplished and all the saving benefits that he's given us in Christ? How does that happen? The reality is the gospel is exclusively known by the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. That's it. Why is that? Well, first of all, we find because the Spirit alone knows God's thoughts. Only the Spirit knows. It can't be discovered by mere creatures like us. We can't just go out independently and go, okay, we need to understand God. We're going to go out and discover him. By the way, every religion on the planet is essentially that except for biblical Christianity. Every other religion is mankind, men and women, going out there, discovering, inventing, creating, putting together, compiling ways in which they can approach God and do religion. It's only the gospel, pre-planned by God, that turns everything upside down on top of it. And now the, the great of the great become the least, and the least become the greatest, where those who, who, who come mourning over sin find comfort in Christ. Uh, where, where the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of God. Reversal, reversal, reversal. And here we see that the only way to come to know that is that the Spirit himself would tell us. And, and he gives us a little illustration of that. Uh, notice, he says, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? What's he saying? There's no way you can look at someone and say, oh yeah, I know what you're thinking. By the way, have you ever tried that before with a friend or a family member? How did that go for you? Usually not well. You know, why is that? Well, first of all, if I say, I know what you're thinking, I've just lied. Because the reality is I don't know what you're thinking. There is no way I can possibly know what you're thinking. Um. It's it's called a rash judgment. It's a great way to build conflict in a relationship. Assume you know what the other person is thinking. So he's using that as an illustration. He's saying, no, no one knows except the thoughts of the person, the thoughts of the person except that person themselves. And then he goes, even so, no one knows the thoughts of God except God's spirit. And that's why I look at verse 10. It's so important that God revealed them, his thoughts, his wisdom, through, notice, the spirit. That's what has to happen. We don't gain the knowledge of the gospel or who God is or our separation from him by sin or the the, the way in which we desperately need to be rescued or the means of rescue through Christ's life, death, and resurrection or the grace by which he lavishes that upon us or the way in which we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift from God. We don't know any of those things at all unless the Spirit opens our eyes to see it. And God has graciously given us his spirit with that deliberate purpose so that we can see the revelation of himself, his purposes, and his salvation. You remember uh, in the book of Daniel uh, when, when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar basically said to the wise men of Babylon, tell me my dream and the interpretation. Remember that? And of course, the wise men were kind of like, well, king, hold on to you what: You tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. That's how this works. And the king's like, yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. So if you can't tell me the dream, then I'm not going to believe your interpretation. They continued to stall, try to negotiate. And Nebuchadnezzar was kind of known for losing his temper a little bit. So he essentially said to them, okay, unless you tell me the dream, uh, I'm going to have you ripped limb from limb I'm going to have your family executed, and I'm going to make your home a rubbish heap. Have a nice day. So at that point, the wise men are like, what? And what are we going to do? Daniel finds out about it, um, and so Daniel goes before God. Fascinating, because the terminology used in Daniel, we don't have time to go there right now, but in Daniel chapter 2, I would encourage you to read it this week, the term mystery is used there as well. Same idea. Daniel goes before God in prayer, with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all go before God in prayer. They seek God, and God reveals to Daniel the dream. And essentially, Daniel praises him and says, you know all that is in the darkness, but the light dwells with you. And repeatedly, as he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. We are as able to find, to uncover, to discover God's wisdom on our own as the wise men of Babylon were able to discover the king's dream on their own. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit does open our eyes to see the truth. So the question for us is, do we realize the potent supernatural work of the Spirit that's necessary for any of us to know anything at all about God? The perception of God, as one writer put it, comes only through God. And, and I think this also protects us from falling into a trap of kind of reducing the Holy Spirit's work down to sort of the, the visible kind of manifestations of gifts and powers uh, that, that, that would come uh, from the gifts that even Paul's going to talk about later in, in, in chapters 12 and following. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit, sometimes the more visible gifts of the Spirit, um, gifts of, of healing or, or prophecy, or what some would call the gift of languages. Um, those kinds of things. They they looked at that and they're like, Yeah, that's the Spirit, man, that's really the Spirit at work. And Paul is saying, huh, it's way broader and way deeper than that. And we need to recognize and rejoice in the supernatural workings of the Spirit but we also need to make sure we don't flatten him down and make him one-dimensional. The reality is this. The power of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in the life of God's people all the time. We are that dependent upon him. Forgiving someone who's offended you. That's the power of the Spirit. Seeking God in prayer. The Spirit is actually prompting you to seek God in prayer. Serving someone in your life who can in no way pay you back. Enduring with one another, whether it be family or friends. Uh, The reality is this, you know, there's a guy sitting on the sofa and there he is. and, and, And the remote is there and the Bible is there. When his hand goes from the remote to the Bible, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. It's a beautiful thing. When a young person submits to mom or dad, not because they agree, but because they want to honor the Lord. When a dad refuses to provoke a son or a daughter to anger because of God's love for him and his desire to love them, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are mighty works. And so we need to make sure that we understand this. We need to recognize and rejoice in uh, the supernatural nature of the ordinary Christian life. And that comes about by the power of the spirit. The reality is we wouldn't have the slightest grasp about any of this at all unless the spirit was at work. That's why Paul calls them. Look at the end of verse 13. These are words. This wisdom is taught by the spirit. Notice combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So wisdom from God is not of this age. It's pre-planned by God. It's revealed by the Spirit. It's also naturally rejected. Um, people left to themselves, look at God's wisdom, look at the gospel, look at the God of glory crucified, and they go, come on. I do recall some conversations with some friends in college. And... Uh, there were some of those debates in the music department there at Cal State LA. I remember talking with them, and, and, and one of them saying, this is all just a bunch of nonsense, and the Bible is a bunch of nonsense. And of course, I had been saying that years before. <laughs> okay, so I got it. I was saying the same thing years before. But I remember one moment, I kind of looked at my friend, and I just go, uh, you know what the Bible says that you're going to say that? And he's kind of like, Huh? <laughs> Yeah, it says it's foolishness to you. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the new birth, the Bible would say we don't have eyes to see. Without the Spirit at work in our hearts, we don't have the apparatus necessary to grasp this. It's almost like you've got an FM radio signal being, being broadcast and you've only got an AM antenna. It, it's, it's like trying to have someone adjudicate maybe a, a watercolor painting contest in a completely darkened, pitch black room. Exactly. It's totally impossible. Yes. We need someone to turn on the lights. And only God the Holy Spirit can do that. And that's why, as described here, these elements of wisdom are, are the things of the Spirit. Notice verse 14. These are the things of the Spirit of God. They are from Him. And so this, this understanding in, in, in the innate ability of human beings to come to Christ and to see these things and understand the gospel, is actually really freeing for us in a couple ways. Um, first of all, it, it protects us from fear, I think, in the effort of sharing with others. Why? Well, because we can go ahead and we can talk about God and the things of God with people. We can direct conversations toward toward the things of the gospel, understanding that God is the one who has to work. The Holy Spirit has to turn on the lights. I can't do that. My part is just bringing that forward, bringing forward the realities of who Jesus is, bringing forward the gospel, the good news. But I'm not in charge of outcome. If the person walks away it says, forget it, or you're a fool, or that's not me. I'm free to just go ahead and share. And so in the workplace or at school or in the neighborhood, I have more courage because of that. There's a, a second way the understanding this element of being naturally rejected, God's wisdom being naturally rejected helps us, and that is it protects us from frustration also. I don't know if you've ever been in that place, but you're like, I've been talking with this person for like years and they won't get it. Why won't they get it? And you almost feel like grabbing them by the lapel and like, come on. But here's the thing. They're left to themselves they're not supposed to if they've not been given by the Spirit the apparatus to see, if their eyes haven't been opened, if their hearts haven't been quickened, if the Spirit of God has not turned on the lights, they're still trying to judge a watercolor contest in a pitch black room. And so it gives us patience, I think, doesn't it? It helps us to engage in a way that's Wise, gentle, truthful, and bold. So we've seen the wisdom from God is not of this age. It's pre-planned by God. It's revealed by the Spirit. It's naturally rejected. And as much as it's naturally rejected, it is also supernaturally received. We see that in verses 15 and 16. He's been using that term appraise. In verse 14, he says the things of the Spirit of God, the wisdom of God and of the gospel are spiritually appraised. And now he's saying the spiritual appraises all things but is appraised by no one. Uh, that word for appraised has the idea of judging or, or examining something or looking at it closely. Certainly here he's playing back to what he said in the previous chapters. Everyone's bickering and fighting over who's, you know, the best teacher, who's the the greatest, with the greatest gifts, or the most knowledgeable, and everything else. And now Paul's going, hey, if you actually grasp the things of the Spirit of God, you're able to actually see, appraise these things from God, and you are not appraised by anybody. Why? Because it doesn't matter what they think. It deflates and diffuses that element of bickering, And then he goes on to quote Isaiah again. Who's known the mind of the Lord that he would instruct him? <laughs> Here he's, he's used that same phrase in other places in the New Testament. Uh, in, in Romans, after he's described all the beauties of the gospel, he quotes the same verse. And it's sort of this declaration of praise to God. Wow. Look at what God's done in salvation. Uh, both the religious and the irreligious are in big trouble before God. And yet God rescues both by faith. Because all of sin and falls short of God's glory. And by faith, when we come to Christ and trust in him, his righteousness is given to us. Not something we earn, but as a free gift. And now when God looks at us as as if it was a white robe of Christ's righteousness, he sees Jesus' good works, our works are laid on Christ and paid for on the cross, and now there is salvation for all who will trust him. Where are you at today? Have you come to that place of receiving God's gift of salvation. The invitation is there for you. Trust him. Believe. And know what it means to be forgiven and receive the gift of a righteousness that isn't yours. As as the supernaturally received gift is further described by Paul. He concludes with this phrase, but we have the mind of Christ. And and you look at that phrase like, what is he talking about? Because I don't feel like I've got Christ's mind, I'll be honest with you. (laughs) What does he mean? You know, is this something where it's like, I'm supposed to do something to make sure I have the mind of Christ? Or is it a state of being thing? Like, you've got it. Well, guess what? He's saying, if you're a believer, you have it. You have Christ's mind. What's he talking about? This goes back to everything he's been just giving us and preaching on and writing about through this past section. The mind of Christ here is very clearly the fact that the wisdom of the world is not really wisdom. There's a wisdom that's from God. You've received that. You've received this wisdom that's not of this age, that's been pre planned by God, that's been revealed by the Spirit. You've been given that you can now see and understand the 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 spirit taught realities of the gospel. You have the mind of Christ, and what does this do for us? Well, clearly, this tells us that as we are going through a world that's broken, filled with opposition, we can see things from God's perspective. We can grasp things from a gospel perspective. We have a different framework for dealing with life, be it troubles or, or, or be it blessings and joy. But we need to make sure that as we do that, we are depending upon him. And the, having the mind of Christ enables us to see that and know that, uh, to be dependent upon the Spirit's work. When we are actively living out the realities of having the mind of Christ, we are those who are dependent upon God in everything that we would engage in. Um, For example, if you're talking to a neighbor, you know, what's your goal if you're operating in light of all you've received in Jesus with the mind of Christ? Well, first of all, you know this, when you're talking with them, your goal isn't behavior modification. In other words, when you're talking to your neighbor, your goal is not turn down the music. That's not the goal. Or stop letting your dog bark up against my fence. That's not your goal. No, your goal instead is to impart the grace of God. You can talk about those things with them. I'm not saying you ignore those things, but certainly that's not your goal. And the way you talk about them is one of grace and truth. You know, when we we look at the mind of Christ and pursuing things in that way, we realize our primary goal is not um, simply, you know, do what I want you to do and stop bugging me. <laughs> it's not behavior modification. It's not cultural or political alignment. Um, it, it's not someone uh, acting in a way that, that you would enjoy according to your preferences. No, it's, you're talking about scriptural principles. And, and you're not diluting scriptural principles simply because they will never buy it. No, that's not it. Why? Because. They don't need to, quote unquote, buy it or not. They need the spirit of God to invade their life and turn on the lights. And he does that. And you can be a part of what he's doing by simply being there to share. There's a lot of obstacles. We shouldn't be surprised by them. But let's be sure that we're operating in a way in light of the reality that we have the perspective, the frame of mind, the the truth, the content of the gospel. We have the mind of Christ. And in, in so we are gonna share the absurdity of the cross out of love for the lost. And in doing so, we're gonna watch him do mighty things amongst us. But it's not with our ingenuity and it's not with the wisdom of the world or culture around us No, it's the wisdom that's from God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see these things, to live in light of them. Thank you for your wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel. Thank you that from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Thank you for the work of your spirit who brings us to the place of even seeing these realities at all. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.